It's always a pleasure to be with you folks. Um, last year were difficult times for Brother Mike, and I rejoice that God has brought him through, but i got to admit it was fun during that little spell when we would come down regularly and fill in for him, and I enjoyed that, and it was a blessing to have some folks from the church back home fill in as well. And we, They have a camaraderie or fill a partnership with you all in the work of the Lord because of that. So I praise God for that. I praise God that this church is still standing. It's still here. So many changes, so many things over the years as... I went out late last night with my daughter to go grab a drink at the, the gas station. It just amazed me how different things are around here. There's just a spirit, it's everywhere you go, that's descended upon this country that didn't used to be here. It's, I don't know if it's a spirit of confusion or what, but that happened to Israel in the old days. Daniel talked about it. But These are dark days, and um, the Lord calls us to endure. And so to come together as brethren is always a blessing. It's, it's, it's an escape from the world. And it's a pleasure to know that uh, this church is still here. And we need to be like Brother Daniel referenced in the Scriptures this morning, that light set on a hill, that city set on a hill cannot be hid. And the light of Jesus Christ always pierces the darkness. And I praise God for that. So it's a joy to be with you all this morning. And... Um, I appreciate your prayers. We appreciate the church's partnership and ministry. Um, we've had some difficult things transpire recently, some unexpected things. But God is good, and we know what He has called us to do. And you can rest assured that we're committed to continue doing that. Um, we committed several years ago as a ministry to make Jewish missions, Jewish outreach, a part of what we do. And um, we're praying that God will raise somebody up to continue that. But until such time, my wife and I have taken it upon ourselves and have found it a great joy. We had the opportunity to share the gospel with a young man from Israel last night at the South Point Mall in Durham and give him a copy of the Hebrew Scriptures. So we were praising God that he accepted that. And, and it's, the hunt's half the fun. A lot of times you can find Israelis working in the kiosk in the malls not all the time. We struck out in Greensville yesterday, but hey, we found a couple of people to share the gospel with and had a long conversation with a Muslim man from West Africa. And so sometimes the hunt's half the fun and you never know what God will do. But we're committed to continue doing what we started doing a long time ago and what you guys as a church have supported since day one. So I appreciate that. I really do. Pray for us. Lord willing, I'll be in South America in June uh, latter part of June for about four to six weeks. We're taking three young people who have served with us before down. And we're going to travel. We're going to start, Lord willing, in Colombia and work our way down through Ecuador and Peru, perhaps Bolivia, following and looking for the Israeli backpackers to share the gospel with. So we're praying as that comes together now and looking to return to South Asia again in the fall. Just got back from South Asia, had a glorious time teaching believers in India Nepal and Bangladesh, Brother Daniel and a team from the church came over, and it was a pleasure to work with Bishnu and James and two of the brothers that have been here in this pulpit, and to teach brethren, to teach pastors who are hungry for the Word of God and are hungry to reach their village areas for the gospel. I was greatly encouraged in rural Bangladesh. We went out to this compound. Brother James took me out there, and it was a long drive. We had to take boat taxis. I mean, it was just ferry across a huge river, and uh, we finally got out there, had a blessed time of teaching 15 pastors for two days, and uh, we went out 
one afternoon, uh, they wanted to show me, one of the pastors wanted to show me where they met for church. It was a small tin building that just recently had been a Hindu temple where people came to worship idols, and now it's a church. Now it's a place where people gather in the village to learn about the Lord Jesus Christ and to learn from His Word. So I was encouraged. God's doing things despite the darkness of the hour. This country's turned its back on God, as did Israel, but God still does things in other countries. He'll raise up people from other countries to provoke us to jealousy like He's done with Israel. God is still at work, and I'm encouraged by that. So let's pray for our persecuted brethren around the world. There's a young man that I was, a, I was involved with baptizing him and his parents a couple years ago in a remote corner of India. I got word that he's had some bleeding on the brain and had to be uh, transported to a far-off hospital. I don't know what's going on there, but it reminded me of a story I read from Tibet in the early 1900s where a man traveled across Tibet preaching the gospel. He buried his wife and one of his children over there. Very difficult, difficult, difficult ministry for a missionary man. And he saw a few people come to Christ. And one Tibetan came to Christ and loved the Lord and was a disciple of Christ for a short time. And then he started showing strange symptoms like that. And it turned out one of his family members had poisoned him because of his faith in Christ. And he went home to be with the Lord. So you never know when you hear things like that. And these believers are from a place where they're persecuted. So if you can pray for that young man. His name is Jimmy. I'm waiting to hear some more news on that. Pray for Brother Bishnu. Him and his wife have been busy preaching the gospel in Nepal as has Brother James. They've been inviting youth into their home once a week and it's really taken off there in Dhaka. People from Hindu, Muslim, Catholic backgrounds coming to hear the Word of God. I had the privilege of preaching to these youth gathered in James's living room uh, back in the month of March. And so there's a lot happening and we continue to labor and appreciate your support. So praise God for that. Turn in your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 24. Now the church back home has been asking me to teach through the book of Revelation. I've been working on it since January of 2013. And I'm only in chapter uh, 14 right now. So we're slowly plugging along. But I'm used to it. It's, it's, it started out about 12.15. And now I'm used to going to almost 1 o'clock. My brother set the record of 1 o'clock months ago. And I passed it a couple weeks ago. So I'm used to that and I'm going to try to remember... That that's not, this is, uh, uh, we don't, they don't have a Sunday evening service back home, so uh, this is a little bit different. So I'll try not to, to, to operate like that, but I know it would be a good thing if we're going to go eat anyway, let's let the initial crowd get in there. Then we can go in there and we can get the second batch, the stuff that's not been sitting out there waiting on the original crowd. We'll get the second batch, a little more fresh and a little less chaotic. But turn to Luke chapter 24. Um, Jesus and Brother Daniel touched on it this morning. There's going to be a little overlap here. Uh, Great Commission. Jesus gives the Great Commission in the New Testament. It's not a good suggestion by any means. It's a Great Commission to His disciples. And most of us think about that verse we memorized in Bible uh, Vacation Bible School, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. But the Great Commission appears five times in the New Testament. And in each of those places, Jesus emphasizes a different aspect of what He's calling us to do. Just like the four Gospels of the life of Jesus Christ, 
They're not four separate Gospels. They, they talk about the same person, but they're there to emphasize different aspects of Jesus' ministry. In Matthew, Jesus is the King of the Jews, the Gospel of the Kingdom. In Mark, He is a, a, a servant. He's the Savior sent to uh, save the world. In Luke, He's the Son of Man. The Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. God in human flesh, 100% man. Jesus, the head of the church. And then we get to John, what is emphasized is this Jesus is the Creator God. The everlasting Gospel, the Creator God, who became a man for us. In the same way, the different appearances of the Great Commission emphasize different aspects of what we're being called to do. Mark 16, 15 and 16 gives us the scope and the results of the Great Commission. Where we're to go? What are the results? Then we get into John 20, 21. As my Father sent me, so send I you. Jesus was sent to build up His church. We're sent to preach the gospel, but it doesn't stop there. We're to build up the church as well. A ministry without the local church is not a New Testament ministry. Acts 1, 8 is the strategy of the Great Commission. It begins in our Jerusalem, and then Judea and Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of of the earth. There's a lot of people who want to go to the uttermost part of the world and they claim to care about the man 10,000 miles away, but they don't care about the man living next door. They're in love with missions and not the souls of men. If you're in love with missions, please don't go. Be in love with the souls of men and then go to the ends of the earth. Then we get to Luke or Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go ye therefore and make disciples or, and, and baptize them and teach them. That's the goal of the Great Commission. We're to go and make disciples, bringing them into a right relationship with the Son of God. We're to baptize them, bringing them into a right relationship with the church of God. And then we're to teach them all things whatsoever we've been commanded in the Word of God. That's bringing them into a right relationship with the Word of God. So we've got, we've got the, goal, the scope and the results. We've got the badge of authority there in John 20. We've got... The strategy, we've got uh, the goal here in Matthew. But then in Luke, chapter 24, we have another interesting aspect of the Great Commission. And I want to just start at verse 44 and read this in context. Luke 24, 44. And he, or Jesus, said unto them, These are the words, this is after His resurrection appearing to His disciples, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Here Jesus acknowledges the three parts of the Hebrew Bible. When I speak about the Hebrew Bible, I'm speaking about the Old Testament. The Old Testament that the Jews read is the same Old Testament we have. The same exact 39 books. They're just arranged a little differently. The order of the books is a little different, but it's the same. And Jesus is making reference to the three parts of the Hebrew Bible. The Law, or the books of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms. The Psalms includes the Writings, and the Proverbs, and Lamentations, and even the prophet Daniel is considered one of the writings. And so, Jesus is acknowledging the entire Old Testament as the Word of God, and He's acknowledging that all of these parts of the Old Testament give testimony of Him. 
Jesus Christ is revealed throughout the Old Testament. Then, verse 45, He opened their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. So understand that Jesus here is showing the importance of the Scriptures in, a, in what He's about to say. And said unto them, Thus it is written. And thus, or therefore, it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and ye are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of the Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. And He led them out as far as to Bethany, and He lifted up His hands and blessed them, and it came to pass, while He blessed them, He was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped Him. Yesterday I was speaking with this Muslim man who refused to believe that Jesus was anything more than a prophet. And I explained to him that His disciples worshipped Him after He rose from the dead. Thomas, when he doubted the Lord and then saw the holes, the prints in his hands and feet in his side fell down and said, My Lord and my God, Jesus received worship. If He were not God, then that would have been blasphemy. But He received worship because His disciples knew Him to be more than just a man. He was God in human flesh. They worshipped Him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. Here we have Jesus giving His disciples a commandment or de declaring to them that they are to be witnesses of what the Scriptures testified concerning Him and that they were to go and preach remission and repentance to the ends of the earth. This is the Great Commission as well. Here we have the message of the Great Commission. We're to go and preach, but what are we to preach? Jesus makes it clear. It is written, and therefore it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day. Just what Paul said was the gospel. Christ was crucified according to the Scriptures. He was buried. And on the third day He rose again according to the Scriptures. That these things are to be preached and that repentance... Repentance is absent from the modern gospel. But Jesus said repentance and remission or forgiveness of sins should be preached in His name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. This is the message of the Great Commission. When we go and preach, whether it's to Jew or Gentile or Catholic or Muslim or Buddhist, this is the message. That it is written, the Word of God declares that Jesus Christ came, was crucified, died and was buried, and rose again the third day. Therefore, repent of your sins and find forgiveness in Jesus Christ alone. That's the message. It's the message for all men. It's funny how Christ, before He declares this message and commissions His disciples, He makes reference to the Scriptures and He reminds them of what the Scriptures say concerning Him. Here we have the living Word of God drawing the attention of His disciples to the written Word of God and what the written Word of God says concerning the living Word. And then he goes to say, thus it is written, and therefore, or and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. Because it is written, 
the written Word of God. Therefore, Christ was crucified and rose up from the dead. There's a very close relationship between the written Word of God and the living Word of God. And we would do well to remember that. In my opinion, three of the most powerful words in the English language are exactly what Jesus uses here. It is written. Now Jesus obviously wasn't speaking to His disciples in English. That's been translated for us. Praise God, He didn't just give the Word to the original audience. He preserved it so we can have it in a language we understand. And those words are powerful. It is written. We see these words 80 times in the Bible. And we would do well to follow the example of those who use them. When Satan was confronted with the tempter in the wilderness, and the devil tempted his flesh, they tempted, the, tempted his eyes, tempted, tried to go after uh, his pride. Christ didn't have pride like the devil did. We have the three types of sin, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. First John talks about that. And Satan went after all of that with Jesus. And how did Jesus respond? He didn't argue with the devil. He didn't try to get into an apologetic discussion. He didn't try to persuade the devil. He responded with three simple, powerful words. It is written. Why do we believe it? Ultimately, it came down to this with me and this Muslim man yesterday from West Africa. The difference between me and you, my friend, is I believe the Word of God. You don't. You believe a book written by a single man who didn't even know what God was going to do with him when he died. That's the difference between me and you. You believe in God, I believe God. It is written. And he kept wanting to debate back and forth, and finally I just spoke the Scriptures. He was very humble. I pray he'll come to Christ. But it's important for us to understand the vital importance of these three words and their relationship to Christ and His Great Commission. The Great Commission is tied to the Scriptures. How can we carry out the Great Commission and not carry the Scriptures with us? How can we go and declare a Jesus apart from the written Word of God? But that's what people want to do today. They want to take, out, take this Jesus and preach Him and lightly esteem the Scriptures and live the way, they, the way they want to and tolerate everything as if Jesus exists apart from the written Word of God. When I look at this instance of the Great Commission and I see these three words, it's convicting. It was convicting when we started this ministry more than a decade ago. And we do what we do because not only of the God Christ's commandment in the Great Commission, but because of its close relationship to the Word of God. It's because of these three words here in the Great Commission that we have more than a decade remained committed as a ministry to a threefold objective. When all is said and done, I'd like to at least be able to look back and say that we were consistent. Consistent. That doesn't mean we don't learn as we serve the Lord. It doesn't mean that we don't grow. But I pray God that our ministry is consistent and that our message is consistent. Regardless of those who come and go, and there have been those who have come and gone, they've served the Lord, they've done it faithfully, and then they're just gone. Find something else to do. Commitment is so lost on the church today. But regardless, we've, we made a threefold commitment, and this is what we stick to. 
public proclamation, the written Word of God, when we travel the world to do the work of the ministry, we're committed to the public proclamation of the written Word of God, to the public publication and mass distribution of the printed Word of God, and to evangelism and missions training in the revealed Word of God. You see, it's all tied to the Scriptures. How can we do any of this apart from the written Word? How can we be faithful to the living Word without the written Word? Yet today, many ministries and churches and Christians lightly esteem the Holy Bible as if it's not relevant anymore. They somehow think that they can have a relationship with Christ the living Word apart from His written Word. It's the same attitude that the politicians in this country have about the U.S. Constitution. They, they talk about this living, breathing document and act as if they can legislate and shove their worldview down our throat as if the written Constitution, as if the words on the page don't exist anymore. The words on the page are very clear that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. The last time a local government in a small podunk town decided to put a monument of the Ten Commandments in their public park, the last time I checked, local government's not the Congress of the United States. How is that a violation of the First Amendment? But we're so backwards because we speak about the living, breathing Constitution as if there is no written Constitution that we can go to and see. The powers not given to the federal government in our Constitution are reserved unto the states. So how in the world are empty robes on a Supreme Court telling our state that we have to acknowledge or define marriage in the way they define it. How is that? Because everybody's about the living, breathing Constitution and no one cares about what's written. It's the same attitude we see with the Bible in our churches today. You can't have one without the other. At least not according to Christ Himself right here in the Great Commission. You can't have one without the other. You can't have Christ without the Bible. I run into a lot of people in America that say, I'm a Christian, but the Bible was just written by men. I laugh at that because Christian's a Bible word. How can you be something that's revealed in the Bible and lightly esteem the Bible? At the end of the day, it's going to come down to not who we think Jesus is, not who they say He is, but what's written. And at the end of the day, it's going to come down to us clinging to this book or not. That's what's going to divide the true believer from the false believer when the times get tough. I want to talk a little bit today about the relationship between the written Word and the living Word. They're inseparable. In fact, I would say in a mysterious way, the written Word of God, the Bible, and the living Word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, in a strange, mysterious way, just like the Trinity, they're one. They're the same. Consider a few places in Scripture. Both the living and the written Word of God are eternal. They're both eternal. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not made anything that was made. This is John chapter 1. Then I go down to verse 14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. 
Eyewitnesses. John was an eyewitness of the Word becoming flesh. This living Word's eternal. It was in the beginning with God. It was God. Psalm 119.89 Forever, O Lord, Thy Word. The written Word that the psalmist there in 119 loves so much. Forever, O Lord, Thy Word is settled in heaven. Both are eternal. The written Word and the living Word. The Bible says that both of them have the power to create. Man can invent things, but man can't do what only God can do. God creates. In Latin they used to say ex nihilo, out of nothing. The best man can do is take and fashion things out of things that have already been made. Man can't create. He can't create life. The fact that life can't be created out of nothing without an outside force, the law of biogenesis proves that evolution is a farce. But Satan's blinded the eyes of the people of this country. Ex nihilo, out of nothing, both of them create. Look at Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to be doing a little Bible drill flipping here this morning. Hebrews 11.3 Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. The worlds, the planets, the stars, the sun, the earth were framed by the Word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. The Bible declared long ago that the things we see are made out of things that do not appear. They're made out of things so small we can't see them. Now how long did it take man to figure out that what we see is made out of tiny particles called atoms that can't be seen? The Bible declared that we're made of things that do not appear long ago. It took science a long time to catch up with, with the Bible. The Bible's a scientific book. But these things, even down to the very atoms, the building blocks of the worlds were framed by the written Word of God. Then look at Colossians chapter 1. If you don't, don't know your New Testament, you might have a little trouble this morning. Get back to the Bible drill days. Remember those days as a kid? My fingers would always get stuck on the pages and I never could get there first. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For by Him, Jesus, the living Word, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. That word consist means held together. It's by Jesus, the living Word, that the things which were framed by the written Word are held together. Without Christ, we wouldn't even, the atoms wouldn't even be held together. The living Word, the written Word, they both create. Both have been tried by fire. It's amazing the characteristics that these share. Turn to Daniel 3.25. I'm going to try to... Get there fast. Daniel 3.25 The three Hebrew children thrown into the fire. Nebuchadnezzar, we know that God has the power to deliver us, but if He chooses not to, we will never bow to your image. That's the attitude we ought to have to the spirit of the age. 
God can deliver us, but if He doesn't, we'll never bow. Then, of course, we know they were thrown into that fiery furnace. And you get down to chapter 3, verse 24. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonished. That's another word for astonished. A little stronger connotation though. He was really astonished is what astonished means. And he rose up in haste and spake and said unto his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said unto the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. The Son of God, the living Word, tried by fire. Walking around in the fire with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Tried by fire, the living Word. Psalm 12, 6 and 7. For the words of the Lord are pure words, the written Word. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Tried by fire. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. The young man last night, the Muslim man said, God gave the Word to Moses and the prophets and the New Testament, but it was corrupted. I said, you're wrong, my friend. You're wrong. The Bible says God gave the Word, He keeps it and He preserves it. You talk about God all day long being so powerful, you don't think He's powerful enough to keep and preserve His Word? He's got to change it? Of course, He had no answer. Both are tried by fire. Both the written Word of God and the living Word of God judge. They'll judge the deeds of men. Turn to John 12. Very powerful statement. Jesus speaks concerning those that lightly esteem the Bible and call themselves Christians. John 12, 48. Jesus said, He that rejecteth Me and receiveth not My words has one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. The written Word of God judges those that reject Jesus Christ in the last day. The living Word of God. Paul says, In the day God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my Gospel. Romans 2.16 In John 5, Jesus said that God the Father has committed all judgment to the Son. Both the living Word and the written Word will judge men. Neither the written Word of God nor the living Word of God can be broken. Jesus said in John 10.35 very plainly to the Pharisees, the Scripture cannot be broken. And then flip over to John 19. John 19, 34 or 33. But when they came to Jesus and saw that He was dead already, they break not His legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced His side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. Why did water come out? The heart is seated in a sack God created. It's an insulation sack called a pericardium. And that pericardium has a watery substance in there that cushions the heart. It's like a shock absorber. When they pierced his side, the water came out because the, the heart and the pericardium had literally exploded under the weight of sin and that fluid around the heart just came seeping out. Christ's heart exploded. That's what killed him by the weight of sin. But blood and water flowed. Then it says, uh, 
Verse 35, And he that saw it bear record, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith true that ye might believe. This was an eyewitness. For these things were done that the Scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. Neither can be broken. Not a bone of Jesus Christ was broken in everything he suffered. The Scripture cannot be broken. Both the Bible and the Lord Jesus Christ, it says, give new birth. They give new birth. 1 Peter 1, verse 23. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. The Word of God. Being born again is by the Word of God, the written Word of God. And then we go over to John 3. Jesus tells Nicodemus, except a man be born again... He shall never see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus like, what, you think, should I go back into my mother's womb? Jesus said, no, unless you be born of water and of the Spirit, the living Word. You cannot see the kingdom of God. Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye must be born again. The written Word of God, the living Word of God, both involved in the new birth. Both give life. John 3.16 for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Right here in, or in John, I'm sorry, John 6, 63, Jesus speaks about the words, the written words giving life. John 6, 63. The words He speaks. It is the Spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, and of course were written down by the apostles, they are Spirit and they are life. See, the Catholics, when they read this chapter, Jesus is talking about, you know, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. And uh, if, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot have life. And they look at that and... You know, they want us to believe that you got to eat the literal flesh of Christ and drink the literal blood of Christ in their Eucharist. And when the Catholic says his little hocus pocus over, the priest says a little hocus pocus over the wafer, it supposedly comes the body of Christ. And if you don't eat it or drink it, you cannot be saved. That's what Catholicism teaches. You know, they want to act as if when Jesus said, I am the door, he sprouted hinges and can't understand that Jesus is speaking. Uh, with symbolic or spiritual language here. And here's the proof in verse 63. Everything he's just spoken about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, he says these words are spirit. This is a spiritual thing. And they are life. They're spiritual, but a, but a natural man can't understand the spiritual. That's why he thinks he has to eat a wafer to eat Christ's body. They're spiritual, but they're also life. They give life. Both live and abide forever. I just read from you, 1 Peter, being born again of the, the incorruptible, which is the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. Christ lives and abides forever. 1 Timothy 6, Paul makes that very clear in verses 14 through 16. Both of them have the same name. The Bible and the Lord Jesus Christ have the same name. Did you know that? John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me, Jesus Christ. One of the most closed-minded statements a preacher ever made. 
When Jesus said those words, He in effect took man-made religion, wadded it up and threw it in a garbage can. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. He's the truth. And then in John 17, 17, as Jesus is praying for His disciples, He says to the Lord, Sanctify them, O Lord, through Thy Word. Thy Word is truth. They both have the same name. The living Word of God, the written Word of God, they're both the truth. Not a truth, the truth. Did you know that both can be loved? Both can be hated and despised. Both can be received and both can be rejected. I'm not going to go through all of those Scriptures. In Psalm 119, the psalmist makes it very clear that the Word of God can be loved. Oh, how I love Thy law! And then 1 John 4.19 tells us that He loves, we love Him, we love Jesus, not because we're good people, but because He first loved us. So both are loved. Both are hated. It says in the Proverbs, He that despiseth the Word shall be destroyed. That's pretty bold, pretty powerful. That's something to consider if you think that you love Jesus, but the Bible's just written by men. He that despises the Word will be destroyed. Jesus said, don't marvel when they hate you. They hate you because they hated me first. Both can be hated. Isaiah 53, the Messiah, He was despised and rejected of men. The living Word is despised just like the written Word. Both can be received. It says in John 1.12, But as many as received Him, the living Word, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, which were born not of blood, not of water, not of the will of the flesh, but born of God. We become the sons of God by receiving the living Word. But look what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 concerning receiving. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 He's rejoicing for this cause over the Thessalonian believers. Also thank we God without ceasing because when you received the Word of God, which you heard of us, you received it not as the Word of men, but as it is in truth, the Word of God, which effectively worketh also in you that believe. Both can be received. Both can be rejected. Both can be rejected. John 12, 48, we've already looked at this. It's a powerful statement by Jesus. If He that rejecteth Me, so rejecting the living Word, and receiveth not My words. So to reject Him is to receive not His Word. To reject Him by default is to reject the Word of God. Both can be rejected. Did you know that both the living Word and the written Word have x-ray vision? That's even better than Superman. Far surpasses Superman in that mythology. They both have x-ray vision. John chapter 2. Bear with me. John chapter 2, 24 and 25. But Jesus did not commit Himself unto them because He knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man. He didn't need anybody to teach Him anything about men. 
For he knew what was in man. Jesus could see what was in people's hearts. He could look through the outside, right inside, x-ray vision. He knew what was in their hearts. He knew what they were thinking before they even spoke. He knew what His disciples were doubting before they could even speak. But then turn over to Hebrews 4. This is one of those passages that we memorize in VBS and we stop a little too early. We need to keep reading. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. It can divide the soul and the spirit. And the, of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner, it's a critic of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It can see the thoughts and the intents and discern what's real and what's not. We always stop there, but we need to keep reading. Look at verse 13. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in its sight. No. In His sight. Who are we talking about? The Word of God. The written Word of God is spoken of as a person. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in His sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of Him, the Word of God, with whom we have to do. X-ray vision. It can see it all. He, He can discern. Who are we to lightly esteem the Word of God? Whether the written Word or the living Word. The Bible says that both raise up out of the dust to declare God's power. Romans 9.17, it was the Scripture that raised up Pharaoh, Paul says, to, de- to declare God's power. Jesus raised up Lazarus, John 11, to declare God's power. Raised him up out of the dust. Both can foresee and preach details about the future long before they happen. Jesus was very clear with His disciples that He would be betrayed into the hands of the the, the chief priests and the scribes. He would be delivered to the Gentiles to mock Him and to crucify Him, that He would be slain and that He would rise again on the third day. Jesus saw this and prophesied it even back at the beginning of His ministry, three years before it happened. He was able to preach it and declare it. Details! See, the Jews didn't kill by crucifixion. They stoned people. But to stone Jesus, who they found nothing, they found, no, they found nothing that would make him guilty according to their law. Even the false witnesses didn't agree. They had to hire mercenaries, in a manner of speaking, to kill Jesus their way. They got the Romans to do it, so they wouldn't break their law. How could Jesus know that? Because he was the Word of God. He could speak details, foresee and preach details about the future long before they happen. Look at Galatians three. The Scripture itself can do that as well. Galatians 3, verse 8. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the Gospel unto Abraham, saying, In in thee all nations shall be blessed. The Scriptures themselves foresaw, and they preached. Foresaw details. Long before they happened that in Abraham all the nations would be blessed. How are all the nations blessed in Abraham? By the church. In the church, the nations that are born again, the the, the people of the nations born again come together in one body. It's fulfilled in the church. The Scripture foresaw this and preached it. Both break in pieces. Both are a giant bear trap. 
the living Word of God, the stone that the builders rejected, whoever falls upon that stone will be broken. If we're not willing to fall upon Jesus Christ and be broken, He'll fall upon us and grind us to powder. The Jesus Christ that died for our sins breaks us and brings us into a relationship with God if we'll call upon Him in faith. But to those who reject Him, He's a stone that grinds them to powder. It's a giant bear trap. Same can be said about the Word of God. Jeremiah says it's a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. You see, the Bible is a giant trap. Those that mock it, those that say it has no power, that it's just a myth, are the ones, the very ones, that are used to fulfill the details that the Bible prophesies. The ones that mock it become the instruments whereby it's fulfilled. The bear trap slaps slap shut. Amazing. Those that mock the Bible become the ones that fulfill its prophecy and they don't even know it. Just like Pharaoh. Just like Pharaoh. Hard hearts. Both break in pieces. Both are a giant bear trap. We can either fall on it and be broken or they'll fall upon us and grind us to powder. Both lead to saving faith in God. Romans 10.17 Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And then in Matthew chapter 11, just bear with me here. Matthew chapter 11, verse 27. All things were delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. The only people that can know the Father are the ones to whom Christ, the living Word, reveals him. Both lead to saving faith. Not one or the other, both. The written Word of God, faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the Word of God, and the living Word of God who reveals the Father to us. And my friends, there's no true worship of God without both. Without the living Word or without the written Word. Jesus said, that the, they that worship, he told the woman at the well, they that worship God must worship Him in spirit, living Word, and in truth, written Word. There is no true worship without both. It says in Galatians 4, we are sons that have been adopted by Jesus Christ into the family through His sacrifice. God hath sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. So true worship involves the Spirit of His Son in our hearts and it involves the truth of the written Word of God. You can't worship God without both. So those that say, I'm a Christian, but just the Bible is just written by men, they can't even worship God. It's like Jesus said to the woman at the well, He said, our fathers worship God in this mountain. You don't even know what you worship. Salvation is of the Jews. You, don't even know, you people don't even know what you worship. The next time somebody says that about the Bible, you don't even know what you worship. No true worship without both. Then turn to Revelation 19. I'm almost finished, I promise. Not going to go to 1 o'clock. Not going to do it. Revelation 19. Both the written and the living Word of God return hand in hand to smite the nations. Not one without the other. 
Verse 11, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. That's not the Jesus Christ of America, is it? It's the Jesus Christ of the Bible. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Wad. And the armies which were in heaven followed him. That's the saints that have been raptured. They followed him on white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. We know these are the saints because elsewhere Revelation tells us that the white linen is the righteousness of the saints. And out of his mouth goeth what? A sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. With it, the sword, the double-edged sword, the Word of God coming out of his mouth, with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When the living Word returns, He doesn't come without the written Word. It's that sword. His name is the Word of God and with it He smites the nations. And then lastly, as we consider the written Word of God, the living Word of God, the Bible, the Lord Jesus Christ, did you know that both, both are worth suffering and dying for? Jesus Christ is worth dying for. And this book is worth dying for. It's worth dying for. There was one who considered both of them worth dying for, worth suffering for. Revelation 1 verse 9. John is writing to the seven churches in Asia Minor and he's introducing himself in this letter God revealed to him. It says, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos. Paul was in prison on the isle of Patmos because of his faith. He was suffering... Because of his faith. Why was he suffering? For the Word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Not just for Jesus, but for the Word of God. For both of these, John was willing to suffer. Because they're one and the same. They're worth suffering and dying for. Is there any doubt? This is, this is just scratching the surface of the characteristics that the Bible and the Lord Jesus Christ share. Just scratching the surface. Is there any doubt that this relationship is inseparable after what we've heard today? Is there any doubt that there is no such thing as a Christian who does not revere, cherish, believe, and preach the Bible? There's no such thing as a Christian in God's dictionary that does not love the Word of God. No such thing. There may be Christians who are ignorant of the Word of God and don't know it as they should. But if a man of God or a man or a woman's been born again, they know that this has authority and they love it like the psalmist. Is there any doubt that you can't know the living word without the written word? Any doubt? In this day and time when the Bible is mocked, people will use Jesus' name and talk about him as being their buddy or their homeboy, and they can get along with Jesus. But when we start talking about the Bible, that's when they get uncomfortable. Is there any doubt that you can't know Jesus without the Bible? I use my Facebook page as a pulpit. With all due respect, I have lots of Facebook friends, and some of you are in here, but I don't use Facebook to make friends. 
I don't know so how somebody could be a friend that the only relationship I have with them is on Facebook. I've never met them. I've never spoken to them. How are they a friend? They're a Facebook friend. I've got many friends who I interact with in other ways that are Facebook friends, but just because you have a, a Facebook friend doesn't make that person a friend. But I don't use Facebook to... I use it primarily as a pulpit to say things that people need to hear. And that's just what I've chosen to do. It doesn't mean that's what you have to do, but it is an opportunity to be a witness for Christ. I encourage you to use it for that. But I posted something the other day I want to close with and uh, concerning these things, and I, I think it would, we would do well to heed it. In the wilderness, Israel waxed fat, grew thick, and lightly esteemed the rock of her salvation. This is what's written and charged against her in Deuteronomy 32. Have weeks here in America done the same? Making our feelings, whether or not we have a peace about something, our convictions, the authority over and above the written Word of the living God, without the Holy Bible inspired by God and perfectly preserved for us in a language we can understand, we spoiled Americans wouldn't even know the Lord and Savior and what He wants us to do, let alone who He is. You might say the rallying point, the common ground is the person of Jesus Christ. But I ask you, which Christ? The Catholic Christ who you can't deal with directly? The Mormon Christ who is the spirit child of an alien from the planet Kolob and has a brother named Satan or Lucifer? Is that the Christ? The charismatic Christ who changes with the wind and wouldn't even dare offend a Jesuit priest or a homosexual with the truth? Or is it the emergent Christ who appeases the wicked and despises his own body, the church? Is it the post-millennial Christ who has no tangible throne and can only speak in dark allegories that a select few can understand? Or is it the Muslim Christ who didn't really die on a cross? The Christ of Judaism who's never been to this earth? The Hindu Christ who survived the crucifixion and is buried somewhere in India? Or is it the Baptist fundamentalist Christ who cares more about whether or not you attend every Sunday and Wednesday service than if you love your brethren, preach the gospel, and obey the Great Commission? Is it the Methodist Christ who said homosexuality is a sin, said that women are not to pastor churches, but he was really only joking? Is it the Buddhist Christ who was absorbed into nothingness, the Lutheran Christ who checks off confirmation class attendance. The Presbyterian Christ who died for a select few that were sprinkled with water. Or is He the Christ of the Church of Christ who begats with water instead of with the Holy Ghost? Is He the Southern Baptist Christ who loves to entertain and perform? The Abolitionist Christ who cares more about abortion and frozen embryos than going into all the world and preaching the Gospel to every creature? Is He the replacement Christ who can't keep His promises to Israel? Or the reformed Christ who venerates men? Which is it? Which Christ are you talking about? That's easy. Whatever you make Him out to be. Unless you rally around the book that declares exactly who He is and what He wants from us. Without the written Word of God as the center of Christian fellowship, my friends, and the final matters and the final authority in all matters of faith and practice in the church, all such fellowship is ultimately a farce and a facade. 
The Holy Bible, the divinely inspired, perfect, preserved, saint-used, time-tested words of the living God and the absolute monarch of all books. Hobiblios, the book. And in the book, it is written. He is not here, for He is risen, just as He said. Moreover, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and preach the gospel. The living word, the written word. I'm sure that offended a few people, but it's the truth. Therefore, because they're so tightly intertwined, Jesus Christ and His word, we need to be those that Peter says desire the sincere milk of the word. But we also need to be those that feed on the meat. Milk is always good. Milk is good for babies. Milk is good for adults. You wouldn't feed a baby. You wouldn't feed a six-month-old baby a T-bone steak. He couldn't eat it. He couldn't digest it. But there needs to come a point where as we feast on the milk, we're also digesting the meat. Because we love not only Jesus Christ, the living Word, but because we love the written Word of God. They go hand in hand. When the stage tells us that Jesus is a good teacher, Jesus was a great philosopher, Jesus was a son of God, or Jesus was a good guy, but the Bible was just written by men. It's just myths from an ancient time. It contradicts itself. When the spirit of the age says all of these things, we need to be those that cleave to our Bibles. There was a man, a mighty man of David, that was remembered because of the mighty feats he did. And one of them was... He fought the Philistines on a piece of ground and it, say, it said he clave. He clave unto his sword so that his hand literally stuck to the sword and valiantly fought and God wrought a great victory. This Bible is the sword of the Spirit. We need to cleave it so that our hand almost sticks to it like that mighty man of David. And when we cleave to it, the living Word of God will wrought. I don't know what... I don't know what the present tense of that word is. That's a past tense. It's an old English word. But He will effect a great victory in our lives. So as we go forth to carry out the Great Commission in our ministry that you all support, we can't forget, as Jesus said in Luke 24, it is written. And because it is written, we go forward and declare He who made heaven and earth, He who paid the price for our sins, and He who, as it is written will come again. We'll commit to do that, and I pray you'll do the same. God bless you. Thank you for your time. I, I did go a little long, but uh, the restaurant won't be so crowded, so please forgive me. I am a street preacher, so uh, it's hard, but thank you. God bless you.